I've never been a big outdoors person. Lock me in a quiet house, close the blinds, turn on the air conditioning, and I'd be a happy boy. I'll take a good thunderstorm over a sunny day, anytime. That all fits with depression, so it's no surprise, really. It's just what makes me comfortable. Now, I'm not a vampire. I like doing yard work and watching my son play soccer. I know the sun is good for you. I'm just not the type of person who wakes up to the sun pouring through the windows and rejoices. I'd much rather be awoken by a crack of thunder and roll back over and go to sleep. When my children were young, I was talked into buying a pop-up camper so that we could go camping with my in-laws. I'm trying to avoid a 20-minute rant on the anger and frustration that this pop-up has caused me throughout the years, so I'll just say that it was expensive. We'll still be paying on it well after it's broken down. It also seems to blow a tire every trip we take and has almost been repossessed twice due to my forgetting we even had it and not paying on it. It's a nightmare. And right after we bought it, my wife's family pretty much stopped camping. So it sat for years. Until we began a once a year tradition of camping with a group of friends in Pentwater, Michigan. This annual trip has been going on for around seven years now. The kids enjoy it, which is why we continue to do it. I'm not sure if you know this, but packing for a camping trip is outrageously time consuming and expensive. I often think about the amount of work that goes into what's supposed to be a relaxing week in the woods. Once there and the camper is set up, it's mostly a relaxing time. Good drinks, good food, good friends. Downtown Pentwater is right down the road and has some nice shops to walk through and Lake Michigan is only 10 minutes away. Pentwater sits on the western edge of Lower Michigan. It's almost exactly halfway between Ludington to the north and the Silver Lake Sand Dunes to the south. Each is roughly 30 minutes away. Every year during our stay, we head down to Silver Lake and enjoy a ride over the dunes with the Mac Woods Dune Rides. It's always a bit surreal to feel like you're traveling across the Sahara Desert while still being in Michigan. I recommend it. There's always a point where the vehicle stops and you can get out and look around, feel the sand between your toes, take photos, and let the kids explore for a few minutes. I like running down the giant hill of sand, but as I get older and depending on how much I had to drink the night before, getting back up gets tougher every year. I'll be honest, it almost feels a little eerie and I've never been able to put my finger on why. Almost like we're not supposed to be there. Generally, once we leave the dunes, we'll travel a few minutes south and check out a beautiful lighthouse that sits on the shore of Lake Michigan. It's called the Little Sobble Point Lighthouse. Its big brother is up in Ludington. Thanks to some restoration, visitors can pay a small fee and climb the 139 steps to the top. From there, you can see for miles across Lake Michigan, as well as having a good look at the dunes. I stick close to the wall and hold the railing tight. The wind can come in quick off the lake and while I'm not afraid of heights, that doesn't mean I'm in love with them. Just as I feel on top of the dunes, being at the top of that lighthouse is awe-inspiring. Staring out into the third biggest Great Lake and third biggest lake in the country can really remind you just how big a place the world is. Thinking about all of that life, death, and mystery inside the over 22,000 square miles of water often leaves me with the same eerie feeling I get at the dunes. And now, maybe I know why.
Episode 14, The Lake Michigan Triangle. Everyone has heard of the Bermuda Triangle. Some people refer to it as the Devil's Triangle. There are different interpretations, but generally the triangle is depicted as running north from Puerto Rico to Bermuda, southwest from Bermuda to Miami, Florida, and finally southeast from Miami back to Puerto Rico. Now, I'm not here to debunk anything. I like to believe in the supernatural. But there are folks who will tell you that there is nothing weird going on in this area. Missing ships and planes and people are due to weather and waves and a heavy amount of traffic through the area. Nothing more. Stories get embellished upon, changed, made more mysterious. I get all of that. In my opinion, whether it's aliens or a portal to another dimension or just a big old area of choppy water and high winds and sometimes bad stuff happens, there's something going on. Now what you may not know is that there is also a lesser known but equally deadly triangle covering a big portion of Lake Michigan. This triangle isn't even famous enough to have its own Wikipedia page, but there are stories everywhere. Just like with the more famous Bermuda version, there are a great deal of vanishings and odd occurrences as well as a great deal of skeptics. The lines of the Lake Michigan Triangle begin in Ludington, Michigan. From there, it travels west to Manitowoc, Wisconsin, then southeast to Benton Harbor, Michigan, and then north back to Ludington. It's estimated and reported that thousands of ships have sunk in Lake Michigan and nearly 30,000 people have lost their lives or gone missing. One website describes the triangle as an area said to cause time to speed up or slow down and to be responsible for the disappearance of several lake vessels and aircraft. Others think it's a portal to another dimension, picking and choosing who and what it brings through. Let's dive in to the cold, dark, deep water of this great lake and see what we find. I'll cannonball in off the lighthouse railing and meet you down there. On May 21, 1891, Captain George C. Albrecht and his crew of six were working for two prominent Muskegon lumbermen named Charles Hackley and Thomas Hume. Hackley was the owner of the boat, and Hume, his partner, was the namesake. The Thomas Hume was an almost 130-foot, three-masted schooner, one of five ships in Hackley's fleet. In mid-May, it departed for Chicago with a load of lumber. On May 21st, the crew once again boarded the ship and set sail for the 118-mile return trip. The ship was empty and sailing fast and light alongside one of Hackley's other schooners, the Rouse Simmons. Not long after leaving Chicago, the ships encountered a squall. It wasn't a massive storm, but strong enough to make the captain of the Rouse Simmons nervous. He turned the boat around and headed back for Chicago. The Thomas Hume continued on. It would be the last time that anyone saw the crew of seven again. The Rouse Simmons set sail for Muskegon two days later. As they approached the shore, they expected to see the Thomas Hume tied up along the docks. It wasn't there. Hackley had all nearby ports searched around Lake Michigan. Nothing was found, not even debris. By the following week, news of the missing ship had spread across the country. The May 29th edition of the Maysville, Kentucky Evening Bulletin featured the headline, Lake Schooner Wrecked. The article read, The schooner Thomas Hume, owned by Hackley and Hume of Muskegon, has undoubtedly been wrecked and gone to the bottom of Lake Michigan, together with her crew of seven men. One week ago Thursday, the Hume and the Rouse Simmons cleared from Chicago for Muskegon. 
A stiff gale was blowing. They slipped along pretty lively and encountered a heavy sea. The Simmons labored in the storm several hours and finally put back into Chicago, arriving there Wednesday night. The last scene of the Hume, she was encountering the storm and pursuing her course to Muskegon. The Simmons remained in Chicago until the storm subsided and then made her way to Muskegon. Upon arriving here, the captain was much surprised to learn that the Hume had not been heard of. At first, it was expected that she had run into some convenient port for shelter, but days passed and no tidings being received of her. Inquiries were made of other boats, but no one had seen the Hume. This incident is what spawned the rumors that Lake Michigan had its very own triangle. While it seems pretty cut and dry, boat meets storm, storm winds, no one really knew anything other than a large schooner and seven men had just vanished. An August 19th article from the True Northerner, a newspaper in Pawpaw, Michigan, revealed that someone from the boat had left a message in a bottle. The bottle washed up on the shores of Benton Harbor, which is the bottom of the triangle. Inside of the bottle was a piece of brown paper that stated, We, the undersigned, are passengers of the Thomas Hume. The schooner's hold is rapidly filling with water, and we have no hope of escape. We are on the St. Joseph course and have been drifting for hours. We have friends in McCook, Nebraska, and Elkhart, Indiana. Please notify them of our fate. Signed, Frank M. Maynard and Wilbur Grover. Now, the message in the bottle would seem to confirm that this was nothing more than your run-of-the-mill boat sinking. It didn't take long, however, for people to presume that the message in the bottle had been faked. There were theories of what may have happened to the ship. One theory had Captain Albrecht sailing to another port, painting the Thomas Hume, and then sailing under a different name. Another proposed that a large steamer had run down the schooner, and the steamer's captain, so horrified by the accident, swore his crew to secrecy. The boat's owners, Hackley and Hume, put up a $300 reward. That's roughly $8,000 today. The offered reward put an end to some of the theories because, well, no one came forward with information. The Thomas Hume remained a mystery for the next 115 years until, in 2006, it was finally discovered. A crew from the Chicago-based company A&T Recovery was in Lake Michigan searching for old Navy aircraft. Working on behalf of the National Museum of Naval Aviation, A&T had recovered over 30 World War II planes from Lake Michigan. They were searching for more when sonar picked up the contours of a large schooner-shaped vessel. The ship, sitting 150 feet below the surface, where the water is clear and cold, was almost completely intact. Originally, no one knew for sure which ship it was. There were none of the common identifying markers carved into the vessel. It did, however, seem to have all of the features that a few photos and documents of the Thomas Hume revealed. There were numerous dives performed before the official proclamation. The similarities included the length, 126 feet long, and width, 25 feet wide, which matched the enrolled dimensions. The Hume's metal rigging leaned off the starboard side fully intact, which was also something they could confirm. The cargo hold was empty, as it should have been. According to the Michigan Shipwrecks Research Association, they were able to conclude that the ship was overwhelmed by the same storm that forced the Rouse Simmons to return to Chicago, while also stating that it was too intact to have been involved in a collision, as the ship's owner had presumed. The ship was very intact, and no human remains were reported to have been found. The Rouse Simmons escaped the Michigan Triangle once, but would meet with it again over 20 years later. 
After its long, port-to-port lumber delivering service for Hackley and Hume, the vessel was bought and sold several times. In 1910, Herman Schunemann bought an interest in the Simmons. Herman and his brother August were big players in the Christmas tree industry in Chicago. August died in November of 1898 when the schooner he was aboard sank near Glencoe, Illinois. Herman would continue the family business for the next 14 years. As Christmas approached each year, and before the wicked winter storms battered Lake Michigan, Schooneman would pull up dockside by the Clark Street Bridge in Chicago and sell Christmas trees. From his ship, a banner hung between the masts that read, Christmas tree ship, my prices are the lowest. He decorated the ship with electric Christmas lights and a tree atop the main mast. The trees were sold for between 50 cents and a dollar. But Captain Santa, as people called him, also gave away some to needy families. On November 22, 1912, Schooneman loaded the Simmons with over 5,000 trees. Christmas trees were crammed into every possible corner of the ship. The trees made for a weight that was way above what was recommended for a ship that size, especially for a ship sailing into a November squall. Up until that point in the season, only one major storm had blown through the area, and that one had avoided Lake Michigan almost entirely hitting southeastern Michigan and northwest Ohio. While most boats were anchored in ports around the Great Lake, Herman and his makeshift crew were going to take a chance. It's rumored that some sailors refused to board the ship and that the Simmons, by that time, was unseaworthy. As the crew departed from the harbor near Manistique, Michigan, embarking on a seven-day trip to the Windy City, a second storm was brewing. Other Christmas tree competitors were balking at the reported weather but Herman saw an opportunity and jumped at the chance to get ahead of the competition. He hoped it would mean huge profits for his business. By late evening, a storm was smacking the Simmons around Lake Michigan. At some point, two crewmen were ordered to check the lashings on the deck. A giant wave barreled into the ship, and both sailors were swept overboard. Groups of bundled trees in a small boat were also washed overboard. If you're a glass-half-full kind of person, the schooner was now a little lighter, and could be maneuvered easier. The captain steered the vessel towards the nearest harbor, but the Lake Michigan Triangle was not about to let the Simmons escape again. Suddenly, perhaps sensing the ship's new course, the storms worsened. The soaked trees were now covered in ice as 60-mile-per-hour winds whipped against the ship. When a rescue station spotted the Rouse Simmons on November 23rd, it was sitting low in the water, its sails ripped to shreds, and flying its flag at half-mast to signal distress. The station's gas-powered tugboat was already out handling other business, so the keeper notified the nearest station, who immediately sent out their rescue craft. The Simmons and its crew of 17 were nowhere to be found. As the storm moved on, it was announced that the Simmons was not the only ship to go down. Lake Michigan had also swallowed three other ships, the South Shore, the Three Sisters, and the Two Brothers. Just like after the sinking of its former fleetmate, the Thomas Hume, a message in a bottle was found once again. This one washed onto the shore of Sheboygan, Wisconsin. It had been corked using a small piece of pine tree. The message inside sadly read, Friday. Everybody, goodbye. I guess we are all through. During the night, the small boat washed overboard, leaking bad. Invald and Steve lost two. God help us. Right around Christmas of that year, numerous Christmas trees and possible wreckage had reportedly washed ashore in Pentwater, Michigan. 
Twelve years later, a fishing net snagged a wallet belonging to Captain Schooneman. The wallet, which was preserved by its oilskin wrap, contained business cards, a newspaper clipping, and an expense memorandum. Finally, nearly 60 years later, in 1971, the ship itself was discovered 172 feet below the surface by a scuba diver from Milwaukee. Eerily, many of the trees were still in the ship's hold, although two were extracted and shown in exhibits. Several items were recovered from the wreck, including the ship's wheel and the anchor. As was the case with the Hume, no skeletal remains were located with or near the ship. The crew and the ship have left behind a legacy. Captain Schooneman's wife and daughters continued running a Christmas tree ship some years after before switching to rail transport for the trees. Each year in early December, the last voyage of the Simmons is commemorated by the U.S. Coast Guard cutter Mackinac, which makes the journey from northern Michigan to deliver a symbolic load of Christmas trees to Chicago's disadvantaged. There's also been a musical entitled The Christmas Schooner, and the band I Like Trains released an EP in 2008 entitled The Christmas Tree Ship. It's five songs, named after the four vessels that were lost that day and the beginning of the message in the bottle, Friday, Everybody Goodbye. It's actually really good. It's haunting, instrumental music that gives off the sad vibe of being caught in the triangle. I'll see if I can add it to the website. Our next Lake Michigan Triangle event happened nine years later, in 1921. This one is mysterious on numerous levels. The schooner, called Rosa Bell, belonged to a religious group in Benton Harbor, Michigan, known as the House of David. Quick research on the group provided enough intriguing information that it could have its own episode. There are not many members left now, but someone is keeping up a website which reads, In May 1903, Benjamin Purnell established the Israelite House of David in Benton Harbor, Michigan. Soon, hundreds of others came from Australia, England, and all over America. They considered themselves among the 144,000, which were redeemed from the earth, according to Revelations. I'll avoid the religious stuff, but I'll let you know that these folks had an entire community, built an amusement park to attract new followers, had touring bands, traveling barnstorming baseball teams, and did it all with long hair and beards. These were hippies, way before hippies. And they owned the Rosabelle, which would make delivery runs from Benton Harbor to all over the shores of the Great Lakes, including the House of David's own island, High Island, which happened to be where it was coming back from, around October 28, 1921. It was reported that this two-masted sailing vessel was found floating upside down, 42 miles east of Milwaukee, two days after its departure. Original newspaper articles reported that there had been a four-man crew on board. There was no sign of any of the crew. The Coast Guard assumed that the ship had sprung a leak, filled, and then rolled, adding that there was no storm and no signs of collision. Another news article from a few days later contradicted the number of crew, upping it to nine, stating that the number had been confirmed with the House of David. The misinformation and lack of information continued as the Associated Press released short little blurbs to newspapers around the country. One article with the headline, Little or No Hope Held Out for Rosabelle Crew, offered only that the remains of the Rosabelle were being towed towards Milwaukee. It would be revealed later that while being towed, a wicked storm came out of nowhere and snapped the tow line. The tow ship raced back to port, and they tried to get it again the next day. The Triangle apparently didn't want to give up its trophy. Later, in another article from the Associated Press, the total crew on board was raised to 10, and the captain's name, Erhard Geis, 
was released. It also contradicted the early report from the Coast Guard regarding the ship springing a leak. New information seemed to indicate that the ship was rammed by a large iron ore freight steamer and that perhaps the crew was taken on board the larger boat, except they weren't. No other vessel was found with any damage, no reports of accidents or rescued sailors, no trace of the crew at all. This was the first time that a wreck had been found still floating with no survivors aboard. The aft section was smashed, the cabin was wrenched away from the deck, and the ship's rigging was floating loosely near the hull. Another bizarre fact was that this was not the first time the Rosabelle had been in this situation. In August of 1875, the vessel capsized in the same area and drifted towards Grand Haven, Michigan. Ten crew members were lost. They were able to recover the wreck and had it rebuilt. The triangle apparently doesn't miss its target twice. In 1937, another mysterious event took place on the waters of Lake Michigan. This time, there was no shipwreck. The O.M. McFarland left Pennsylvania carrying a nearly 10,000-ton load of coal. The ship sailed around the lower peninsula, up through Lake Erie, and through the Straits of Mackinac. Now they were in Lake Michigan, and their destination, Port Washington, Wisconsin, was only three hours away. It was April 28th, which happened to be Captain George R. Donner's 58th birthday. A little after 10 p.m., Donner told his second mate to wake him when they were nearing the port. He was going to get some rest in his quarters. He left the wheelhouse and went below. A little after 1 a.m., with the port in view, the second mate went to the captain's quarters and knocked on the door. The door was locked from the inside. All attempts to wake the sleeping captain went in vain. As the second mate's concerns grew, he was finally able to get the door open. There was no sign of Captain Donner anywhere in his room. Other than the door, the only other way out would have been through a porthole that was much too small. The crew scoured the ship. There was no sign of him. Ships along the same route and communities along the shorelines were asked to keep watch for Donner's body. It's been over 80 years. Nothing. To make things even more bizarre, the captain was in his room as the ship crossed into the Triangle near Ludington, Michigan. Now, we find ourselves 13 years later on June 23, 1950. Let's get out of the water and dry off in the not-so-friendly skies above the Lake Michigan Triangle. In New York, it was a warm night as passengers boarded Northwest Airlines Flight 2501 to Seattle, Washington. The pilot was 35-year-old Captain Robert C. Lind. The co-pilot, Vern F. Wolf, also 35. Taking care of the passengers in the back was 25-year-old stewardess Bonnie Ann Feldman. Speaking of the passengers, there were 55 in total, 27 women, 22 men, and 6 children. The flight lifted off on time from New York's LaGuardia Airport at 7.30 p.m. and headed west towards Cleveland, Ohio. A little over three hours later, Flight 2501 reached Cleveland. Captain Lind requested to drop to 4,000 feet and traffic control approved. Around 40 minutes later, the pilot was instructed to drop to 3,500 feet in order to avoid an oncoming flight that was at 5,000 feet. Traffic control also wanted to pass along that the oncoming plane had experienced severe turbulence over Lake Michigan. The pilot steered northwest, and by 11.51 p.m., the plane was nearing the storm. Captain Lind reported that he was over Battle Creek, Michigan at 3,500 feet and would reach Milwaukee within 40 minutes. As he neared the shore of Lake Michigan, he radioed in and requested to drop down to 2,500 feet. He never stated a specific reason. The request was denied. 
It was the last anyone would hear from Flight 2501. By midnight, Milwaukee Air Traffic Control advised New York, Minneapolis, and Chicago that Flight 2501 had not made contact with them as they should have. Numerous attempts were made to get in contact with the pilots by various locations. As the sun came up six hours later, the U.S. Navy, U.S. Coast Guard, and state police from Illinois, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Indiana all came together in the search. Thirteen hours later, at 6.30 Saturday evening, the U.S. Coast Guard found an oil slick, a small amount of aircraft debris, and an airline logbook floating in Lake Michigan. As the search continued over the next few days, more smaller items were located, including a fuel tank float, seat cushions, clothing, blankets, luggage, cabin lining, and, tragically, body parts. Authorities wanted to know whether the plane had crashed into something, exploded, or hit the water. The small pieces of debris were the only clues they had. All they knew for sure was that the loss of Flight 2501 was the worst commercial aviation disaster to date. Initial reports suggested the plane exploded in midair, with debris falling into the lake between Glen and South Haven, Michigan. Officials began discovering debris and body parts Saturday and Sunday over a four-mile area about 12 miles northwest of Benton Harbor. The Coast Guard captain would not allow a dive to find the wreckage, stating that he doubted there was any piece of the wreck big enough to be worth diving for. A week later, portions of the bodies of two women were discovered. Authorities in South Haven, Michigan, closed the popular South Beach for nine days after the crash, due to the large number of body parts that washed in among the bathers. It was reopened on July 3rd for the holiday crowds. It was later reported by witnesses to Flight 2501 as it flew low overhead that minutes after it passed by, there was a terrific flash out in the lake. A gas station owner reported seeing a queer flash of light. The man's wife added, All of a sudden, there was this flash. It was a funny light. It looked like the sun when it goes down. It only lasted a second and then was gone. Another witness reported a funny yellow light trailing from the wing. Six months after the loss of Flight 2501, the official cause of the disaster was listed as unknown. No major piece of wreckage bigger than your hand has ever been found. Today, it's often listed as a strange anomaly, as people on the Wisconsin side of the lake reported a bright light hovering over the lake about two hours after the event. Now, we fast forward to 2007. Mark Holly, a professor of underwater archaeology at Northwestern Michigan University, and a team of archaeologists are using sonar to scan underneath the waters of Lake Michigan. They're looking for shipwrecks and have found sunken boats, cars, and even a Civil War-era pier. This time, Holly and his team noticed something a little different. The sonar reveals a line of stones stretching almost a mile long. The stones are all about the same size, and at one point in the line there is a perfect circle of stones, Stonehenge in nature, perhaps arranged at a time nearly 10,000 years ago, before there was a Lake Michigan. A further indication of the age is the fact that one boulder, believed to be made of granite, has what appears to be a prehistoric carving of a mastodon. While the rumor mills swirl online about Michigan's own Stonehenge, it hasn't become as big of a deal because the people that would be able to verify such things are not divers. The location of the site has not been revealed in an effort to keep it preserved and they can't remove the stone for the same reason. There also appears to be a population of Native Americans who want it left alone. So how does all of this tie in together? 
which of the things we've discussed can be chalked up to an area with rough weather and bad luck, and which leave you wondering if there is something bigger at play, something paranormal or otherworldly. There are other stories out there, thousands of shipwrecks dating back to the Le Griffin in the 1600s. Some are later found, some are never heard from or seen again. In 1883, numerous people on a tugboat near Chicago reported massive ice chunks falling from a cloudless blue sky in July. They were even able to offer proof that they collected and kept in a freezer. Countless reports of strange lights over the area, strange meteors with even stranger sounds, UFO sightings, the list goes on and on. Is there a portal to another dimension within the triangle? What of the reports of uneasy feelings and the manipulation of time? There were times while researching all of this where the skeptic in me said, come on, people, it was just a rogue wave that took a boat down. After all, the parallel shores of the lake can cause some freaky currents and disruptions. There have been enough unexplainable events, however, that I believe there is something off about the area. When I'm standing on the dunes or high above the lake at the little Sobble Point Lighthouse, I can feel that something is different. As I mentioned earlier, now I know why. When looking at a map of Michigan, the first little bump you see sticking out on the left-hand side of the lower peninsula, from Pentwater, where I camp, to the dunes and the lighthouse just below, is all within the Lake Michigan Triangle. In fact, it's the only land that is. Do you live around Lake Michigan? I'd love to hear from you if you've seen, heard about, or felt something strange. I'll post some pictures on the website, curator135.com. I'm also available on any of the socials. Just search Curator135. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode or any of my other episodes, I would love it if you could leave a five-star rating. It really helps. As always, be good to one another and be creative. The world needs you. Also, happy birthday, Dad.